And so we want to welcome those that are at home in the gym. And I love it when you guys post pictures, even at home still, um, because you're still part of Village. I know some of you, for health reasons and other reasons, still can't come out. And we want to, to know, you to know that we miss you, we love you, and um, can't wait till we're all back together again. Painting is insidious. Or paint is insidious. You know, it, it, it has a mind of its own. Is that, is that fair? That we, we just painted our house and um, hired a couple young men to do that. And um, named, named Mark and Jeff. Um, <laughs> and I helped them out. But what, what's insidious about it is that paint can go places that you don't even realize it goes, right? You know, end of the day, you are finding paint. It's like, how did that get there? Maybe in hair or on faces or... Um, I, I, one of the days I came the next day to work to a meeting and someone said, oh, you've been painting. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and, and the paint was like behind my arm and some was on my back where I couldn't see it. And so I had no idea it was there. And I'm like, yeah, that's the color of our exterior of our house. And that's um, how do you know these things? Because paint has a way of finding just the right spot where you can't see it, but yet it's obvious to other people. Now, now that's a a silly example, though, of of a serious issue that we want to talk about this morning, of something that does blind us, something that we have trouble seeing in our lives, but other people can see pretty clearly, and it's a stain on our lives. It's a stain on our testimony, and it can really affect our Christian walk. And that's the issue of pride. Pride is one of those things that we are almost always blind to. In fact, the very nature of pride of elevating self, of thinking highly of ourselves, the very nature of that keeps us from recognizing that in ourselves. And so it's one of those hidden things that that we just don't see. The title of this morning's message is Mad Cow Disease. And I don't know if you remember 2003, 2004. I I know it's the year of the disease or the the virus or whatever. 2003, 2004, it wasn't about COVID-19. It was about mad cow disease. And it's this disease where cows, their central nervous system starts to break down in their brain and their spinal cord. And, and it did transfer to some humans because if you ate certain parts of the cow and it would begin to do the same thing in a human, not to get gross, but it would start to eat away at the brain stem and the spinal cord. And some of the symptoms of it were irritability, a change in personality, agitation, aggressiveness, anxiety, memory loss. And the thing about those early stages of it is the person it was happening to rarely knew it was happening to them. Because memory loss, well, how do you know that if you've lost your memory? Uh, I just think about that. But personality changes, sometimes those can change slowly. and, And it can be something that completely is destroying our lives that we are completely blind to. And pride works that way. Pride is something that we are often blind to that is hard to see, that we can study a passage like today we're going to study and we can say, that is a great lesson for King Nebuchadnezzar. Pastor Ron, great sermon. I really hope these other people in the church hear it because I can give you a list of people that need that. And I'm thinking, yeah, so can I. (laughs) And we all have to realize we're the top of the list. We're the top of the list when it comes to pride because Pride is something that every person in this room struggles with. Pride is the root of virtually all sin. It is the root of defiance against God. It is the root of worshiping self and loving self more than God. It is the root of priority problems. It is the root of thinking that we know better than God and our way is better. It's all kinds of different definitions of pride. It's hard because it's such a broad concept. But one, one just simple way of thinking of it is putting oneself as more important than God and others. Putting oneself as more important than God and others. Viewing all through the lens of self. And, and how does this affect me? What do I think about this? And we're going to dig into that a little bit more. Because my goal today is that we learn how much God hates pride from King Nebuchadnezzar. How much he will humble pride from King, Neb- King Neb- Nebuchadnezzar say that a bunch of times fast, but also hopefully start to expose areas of our life that God wants to warn us about pride in our lives. And so this morning is one of those sermons that my prayer for our church today 
is that the text steps on our toes and challenges us today. So just straight up, I'm going to start with that. I'm hoping that it's a hard morning and a revealing morning. See, pride is this idea that, that does infiltrate everything. It's a belief that I know better. It's a belief that I am better. It's a belief that I am right. But we have to start with Proverbs 16, 18, where the author said, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's where we get the quote, pride goes before a fall. It's from this verse. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. So if you turn there, we can follow along. And, and we're, we're on the King Nebuchadnezzar, the Neb Chronicles, I call them sometimes, where we have four chapters here of God in confrontation with King Nebuchadnezzar. Or rather, King Nebuchadnezzar shaking his fist at God and thinking he's better than God. And it culminates today in Daniel chapter 4. We've seen in chapter 1 that God showed that he could protect and that he could give wisdom even in the face of, of orders that were contrary to what these men felt they could do. In chapter 2, we saw that God reveals in the dream of the image and that he is sovereign over all. In chapter 3 last week, we saw that God is a God that rescues. And even when he doesn't, he's still a God that rescues. And we can trust him and he is sovereign. And now we move to chapter 4. And just in terms of history, we're probably looking about 30 years later. So we just got in our little time machines and we've advanced 30 years. King Nebuchadnezzar is still on the throne. And and in this 30 years, there was a lot of, of destruction and taking over countries at first. But now we're in a time of relative peace. And this is the building era of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign where he has built these grand and amazing things. And we'll talk more about that in the middle section of the text. And so this is, this is a time of peace. Daniel is still with them, which is actually, that, that speaks volumes to a lot of things about how Daniel approached government, how he approached respect, how he approached his, his God and in his work and his job. And so today we get to chapter 4, 30 years later, and we're going to find God not only protects and reveals and rescues, but God humbles. God humbles and God is supreme and let nothing stand in the way of that. If you remember, the main point of all of the book of Daniel was Yahweh is most high. And every attempt by man, rulers, or kingdoms to usurp him will be defeated and brought low as God's kingdom and those who stand with him will rule forever. And in today's chapter, we see an example of God bringing someone low that then humbles himself and turns to God. Next week, we'll see God bringing someone low for their pride who refuses to acknowledge God. But this is really the center point of the narratives of Daniel. So this morning we come to Daniel chapter 4, and at the top of your notes, I just have a summary of the chapter. I guess you could just take that summary and check out the rest of the, the 30 minutes. God hates pride and humbles those who, those who will not acknowledge his sovereignty and rule over them. God hates pride. And, and, and hate is a strong word, and it should be. We know that God opposes the proud, which is an active opposition, which really isn't what you want the supreme God of the universe against you on. But God hates pride and humbles those who will not acknowledge his sovereignty and rule over them. So turn to Daniel chapter 4, and let's start with verses 1 through 4. A little bit of structure. Verses 1 through 4 is the lesson learned. He starts with the lesson learned. He starts with the summary And then he's going to go back and tell us how he got to that conclusion. He's going to end with the same summary. So if you think of it as a sandwich, these pieces of bread beginning in the end, this is what the whole chapter is about. And in verse 1, we read, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And, And again, this is his letter, his proclamation to all peoples, nations, and languages. Same description that's used of of all the people, types of people he brought to the image in the last chapter to worship the image. But he says, to all people, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Which is actually a, a pretty cordial greeting for King Nebuchadnezzar. It has seemed good to me, or I've delighted, it delights me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. 
And I can just picture, going back to when we had vinyl, the, the scratching of the record needle across as it just halts there. It's like, what? This isn't what we've seen in the first three chapters. This is not King Nebuchadnezzar. He's praising God. He, it's, he's delighting and showing the signs and wonders the Most High has done. He's saying how great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. This is amazing. This is amazing and a complete turnaround from where we left chapter 3. And so this, it's beautifully written because as someone reading this, we should say, what's up? What's going on here? What has changed? And it should draw us into the story. What has happened? Because now he's going to recount the story. The story that changed his life, that changed his view of God, that changed his view of self. This is a wonderful statement of the grandeur of God. It's a humble statement. This is a humble statement coming under the sovereignty of God. He's pointing people to Yahweh. We're we're challenged in this chapter by Nebuchadnezzar. Do we want to point others to God the way he did? Do we delight in it the way he did? And that's how he starts this chapter. So now we've got to figure out, okay, what changed? What intervention by God took him from A to B because A and B aren't even close? And so we come to verse 4. And now we come to the three major points of of the morning. We're going to see that God warns, God humbles, and God honors. God warns, God humbles, and God honors. Point number one, God warns of pride and gives opportunity to repent. And, and, And I love this section because we see the mercy of God and the love of God on display in this section. Some people say, well, you never see that in the Old Testament. No, just every chapter. And we see that here, a man who is so opposed to God and and in such opposition. And we see God reaching out to him as God has reached out to every one of us to believe. When we can't come to him on our own, God reaches through the, the muck of our sin and reveals himself to us. And that's what he's doing for Nebuchadnezzar. Starting in verses 4 through 18, God warns of pride and gives opportunity to repent and we really have two halves to this section. The first, 4 through 18, is the warning dream. And so we're going to get the dream, and then we're going to see the interpretation of that dream. There's a lot of text this morning, so we'll move through it pretty quickly. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid, or the word is terrified there. So it's more than just, oh, no, I was a little afraid at the earthquake we had the other night. No, this is terrified. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And so he he again, we're dealing with dreams like we were in chapter 2. And and just just to notice some things right from the start. And, you know, we've read ahead. We know this is a story about pride. And so we can take some of these things and understand how pride works. What's happening with Nebuchadnezzar? What does it say about him? He's at... You can talk back. Ease, right? He's at ease in his house, prospering in his palace. The picture is, life is good. Life is really good. He has a son at this point that's being groomed to be an heir to to the throne. And so that accomplishes that. He sort of has accomplished everything he's wanted to accomplish. And now he's just enjoying it. It's this this life where life is good. And then suddenly something happens that terrifies him. Something breaks into the normalcy of this good life to confront him with truth. One of the things right from the start that I've noticed about pride and of self-reliance is it often comes when life is good. It often comes so strongly when life is good. We hate trials, right? None of us sign up and say, you know, I'd like some good trials in 2020. This is a great year. Um, but trials are often what humbles us. And trials are often what reminds us that we need God. Because as human beings, it is so easy when life is good and at ease, I mean, that's a, that's a powerful word here, to forget that we need God. To start to think that life is good because, hey, I've, 
I've constructed it this way. I've made good choices. And so life is good, and that's where pride has settled in in some deep, deep ways in his life. The other part of verses 4 and 5 is that God gets his attention by making him afraid and terrified of something. God will interrupt our lives to to show us who he is. God will interrupt our lives to, to show us pride in our lives. He will break into the ease. He will break into the routine to reveal what he needs to reveal. And we can fight it or we can welcome it. We can be angry or we can look for what God is trying to teach us and do through that time. And so right from the start, we have the setting. Life is at ease. Something interrupts that ease and makes him afraid. And it's this dream. And so verse 6, as any as a good megalomaniac will do, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Sound familiar? Like chapter 2. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in and I told them the dream. At least he told them this time. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. What's he doing wrong here? Do you notice it right from the start? So, So again, he's gone back in time. He's telling us the story now of how he came to know Yahweh is supreme. He's trying to find out the dream and he still leaves out followers of Yahweh. Daniel isn't in the list. And he's still going back to old practices of, I'm going to trust myself. I'm going to trust my wise men. And he misses an opportunity here. And we see on display the failure of human wisdom, which again is another evidence of pride. He wasn't relying on Yahweh first or even at all. And so finally, verse 8, when he's out of options, which is so true of us, when he's out of options, he goes to God. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So he even recognizes that this is a holy man. He remembers some of the history. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, then why didn't you start there? I I don't know. Tell me the visions of my dream, that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches." And all flesh was fed from it. Hey, we're good so far. This is a positive. I don't know why he's frightened on that. That's because that's not the end of the dream. And so, so far, so good. Verse 13. This is where the dream turns. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, sometimes words we use for an angel or a messenger from God, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off the branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with the band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him, and he changes to a personal pronoun here, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. This isn't so good anymore. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The wording there is actually really important because what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He gives decrees. Decrees of who should worship whom. Decrees that the magicians come in. And the contest is between who gives the decrees. Who is sovereign? Yahweh or King Nebuchadnezzar? And here the dream says, the decree, the decree that you're worried about is from the watchers or from God. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. 
And that phrase in verse 17, if, if you're comfortable writing in your Bibles, I would highlight that or underline that. That's going to come up at least three times in this one chapter. That's the point of the chapter, that the living may know the most high rules. This is the dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So he recognized, and again, he's still polytheistic at this point. Lots of gods. Let's try them all. But he knows Daniel is a man of God here. And he has refused to go to him first, I think, because that would be embarrassing. And he's still trying. Pride always tries self first because we want to elevate self and his own stuff first. But now Daniel is asked to interpret this dream. And it's really interesting. You have all these elements. The tree is cut down. The stump is still there. The roots aren't touched, so it is still alive. The band is put around it because that was thought to keep a tree from growing, almost like a cap with a band around it. So you keep the tree from growing. But the purpose is that the living may know the most high rules. The whole dream is about bringing low one who has forgotten human dependence on the most high. One who is ignoring the most high. God is sovereign, village. God is above all things. God is sovereign over the circumstances you are going through. Don't doubt it. Because to doubt it is actually pride. To doubt it is saying, I don't acknowledge the sovereignty of God. But God is sovereign. And so this dream is about humbling the proud. Now, verse 19, we get to the interpretation and the call to repent. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and and that keeps getting repeated because that's the name that that King Nebuchadnezzar had given to him after his gods. And it's, it's reminding the sovereignty of God that the servant of God, you can call him a servant of your God, but it's still about Yahweh. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now this is a fascinating verse. A a couple things here. We see Daniel alarmed, right? He doesn't want to tell. Why doesn't he want to tell him? It's not good news for the king. I actually think all of the magicians knew that in the wise men. The dream's not hard to figure out. (laughs) Especially when it changes to he and you and things like that. And it tells you the purpose. I think they're all worried for their heads. Because you tell King Nebuchadnezzar bad things and you get get beheaded or you get killed. But I also see something else in in this verse that is really key to understanding Daniel and understanding the type of man that he was. Do you see his concern for the king here? Now, this is the king that ripped him out of his home country, that destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, that completely upended all of of Daniel's people, the Jewish people, and you don't see vindictiveness there. You don't see a man that says, oh, this is a great dream for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going down. But you see this genuine care. Care for someone that's still made in the image of God. At least for a while. Care for a man that he had served for 30 years. Who wasn't a believer in God. But Daniel acted with God's love and integrity. He says, may this be for those that hate you. And it's interpretation for your enemies. And you get a sense that there's a relationship there. A working relationship. And then we go through the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heaven live. It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And so, so far, so good. And, and it, it's true. This was the greatest kingdom that had ever been on the planet at this point. The most beautiful. And, and yes, it was brutal at first, especially in the, the taking over. But in times of peace, he also provided for all his vassals. And, and it, it was, there were some incredible things about this kingdom. Some awful things about the kingdom, too. But it was a great kingdom from human standards on the face of this planet. And so, so Daniel starts there. And, and you, you see a couple of things there as we go on. The, the it is you, we're going to see that a couple places in verse 22. That should remind us of even Nathan going into King David. Remember that situation with Bathsheba? And he tells the story of the, the sheep and all that. He finally says, that's you. And, and we're going to see that in verse 22. That's you is a good thing, but he's going to use the same language as we go on to point out the pride and the sin of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stumps of its roots in the earth bound with the band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High. And we, we see that decree language again. It is a de- decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord the King. There's elements of His decree rules over you. That you shall be driven at, from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. And that is referencing seven years. The periods of time could be a number of things, but we know from the rest of the text, seven years this is going to happen to you. And again, a phrase you can underline or highlight, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Until you get it, you're out eating grass with the cattle. So get it. Please. 26, and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know heaven rules. It's a promise saying when you get to that point, when you acknowledge Yahweh, when you acknowledge you're not all that and there's a sovereign over you and he is God Almighty, then your kingdom will be given back to you. It's not you, it's him. And then again, we see this amazing verse in 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And we see in that verse something we skip over so easily in these stories. This is a warning. This is a warning, not an edict. This is something reversible if King Nebuchadnezzar will change. If he will humble himself. If he will deal with the pride that's in his heart. And so yes, the stump represents the kingdom and and that it's going to be stripped away for seven years and then be given back by God. Because nothing is his. It's all God's. But the end of this is a call to repent. Please change. And again, you see Daniel's heart for the king there. He's praying for the king. He's hoping for the king. This is an evil man. And Daniel is submitting and praying and doing exactly what Scripture tells us to do. And we see this call to repent. Please change. Don't let this happen. You can write in the side notes of your your Bible there, God's mercy on display. This is God's mercy on display. And what is he asked to do? Stop sinning, first of all. Stop sinning. Renounce your sin of pride and arrogance. Clean up your life. Stop sinning. And the second thing, do the works of righteousness. By practicing righteousness, the text says. And this is, is basically do the right things. Start acting right. Do the things that show that you honor Yahweh and show humility. You know, for us, 
That might be doing ordinary things. And one of the great ways to combat pride is to start to do humble things. Um, wash the dishes, change the diapers, mow the lawn. You know, at the store, choose the longest line instead of the shortest. Write notes of encouragement that don't even mention yourself. These are all just ordinary acts of righteousness that combat pride. And then the last thing that King Nebuchadnezzar was told is to show mercy. Show mercy to the oppressed. Care about and spend time with the less fortunate. This combats the the prioritization of people that often happens with pride. Well, they can help me. They can't. Or, man, it would be good for me to be seen with them. No, show mercy to the oppressed. See, and that, and that deals with a whole lot of things that from his past and what's happening in the kingdom. But Daniel's instruction was change. Change everything. Get rid of sin. Do what's right. Show mercy. See, this is the point of the story and, and that we usually start with. Oh, I know what happens next. He gets mad cow disease. It's really cool. Unless you're him. But, but we're, we're two-thirds of the way through the chapter. The chapter is about a warning against pride and, and a call to repentance. God is revealing his pride and giving him a chance to repent, just like he does for us. We are a proud people. And the starting point is to say we're a proud people. And God will reveal that in us and constantly tries to reveal that in us. He gives us red flags all over the place for pride. Warning signs of pride. Remember, God hates pride. And one of the reasons is pride is a form of idolatry. It's putting something as more important than God, which cannot be tolerated and will not work. It is not sustainable. And so God hates pride, but rather than just striking us dead, praise God, He's warning us and gives us opportunities to work on this. Because He is a God of grace and love and forgiveness. So how do we see pride in ourselves? If we're blind to it, how do we see it? And, and, and having others is so key to that, to having others that are willing to speak truth into our lives that we don't just marginalize because they spoke truth into our lives. That is so vital. I wanted to just go through, I know you have 16 items in your notes. You're like, oh great, here we go. What are some of the warning signs of pride? And my point of going here this morning is to try to open our eyes to pride in our own lives. Now, if you're going to sit there and pick people in your household that these apply to, just check out for the next 10 minutes. That's not helpful. But start to look at your own life. Because as I went through this list, it was convicting. There are areas of pride we can all work on. We are a proud people. And so I, I culled this list from a, a lot of different sources. The first seven are from Jonathan Edwards. He had, he had a whole article about seven sneaky symptoms of the infection of pride. I'm like, let's start there. And then I pulled from a, a number of other just valuable Christian writers. Because I think if I just pull from my own idea, then, then I'm going to be blind. And so to pull from some of these other sources is helpful. <laughs> 16 warning signs of pride. First is fault-finding, a critical spirit. And these aren't in any particular order. A critical spirit. See, pride, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote, pride causes us to filter out the evil we see in ourselves. It also causes us to filter out God's goodness in others. We sift them, leaving only their faults fall into our perception of them. When we are constantly having issues with people, when we are constantly finding fault with people and critical of people, that almost always is a sign that we are battling pride. Or maybe that we are no longer battling pride that's in our lives. Number two, a harsh spirit. A harsh spirit. Pride causes us to deal with people differently. Hey, if I'm better than you, I don't really have to be that kind to you. You probably need to hear my words of wisdom anyway. See how that's pride? When, when we have a harsh spirit, or in this case, when it's affecting our relationships, people bother us more. 
And if we, we find that people are bothering us a lot, a lot, we need to start dealing with pride in our lives. Again, Edwards writes this, Christians who are but fellow worms ought to at least treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. I've got to say that one again because it's not often I get to call us worms. Christians who are but fellow worms ought to at least treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. Ouch! But that's true. See, a harsh spirit comes when I don't think I'm a fellow worm anymore. When I think I'm better than you. Harsh spirit. Number three, superficiality. Superficiality. And, and at first I'm like, okay, what does he mean by this? But think about it. When pride lives in our hearts, we're more concerned about what people see in us, what their perception is of us, than the reality of our hearts. And so this is the idea of putting on fronts, putting on faces of how people need to see me, how people need to perceive me. And that's pride. That's pride. And one of the things I think about as a pastor and and pastor's family, one of the temptations that I've seen so many pastors struggle with is needing to present their family as the perfect little family and their kids as perfect little kids. I love my kids, but they are not perfect. (laughs) And they're all looking at me like, what are you going to say next, Dad? (laughs) We're going to leave it there. Because you and I aren't perfect. And so... Yeah, you you see our family warts and all. And you see us trying to seek God through that and ask for God's strength through that. They're not perfect because Susie and I aren't perfect. Our marriage isn't perfect. But we have this tendency to want to put on these faces and and, you know, no, no one ever puts the ugly pictures on Facebook and Instagram. No one ever puts the meals that didn't work out. I, I, I don't know. Because pride, superficiality. Number four on your list, and I didn't put blanks on this because I wanted you to be able to take this home and think about it. Number four, defensiveness. Isn't this true? Pride is the source of defensiveness. And when we're easily defensive, we're unable to receive constructive criticism without thinking it's a personal attack. All of that is defensiveness that comes from trying to protect ourselves in pride. Number five, a lack of reverence for God. A lack of reverence for God. Jonathan Edwards words this as presumption before God. See, if, if I'm putting myself first, or if I think I'm just so important, I start to lose the fact that God is here and I'm a worm down here. Or I'm an ant. And when I start to think we're closer to being equals, I start to lose my reverence for Him. I start to lose the awe. I start to lose the fear of God which is the beginning of wisdom. God is sovereign. He is completely other than us, completely unlike us, completely above us. Now that doesn't mean He's far off. We have the imminence of God. He's close to us because He has chosen to enter our world and reach out with love and grace. But never lose the fact that He's still God. And we are to still reverence Him and still fear God. Number six, Sign of pride is when we have a consistent need for attention and affirmation. Pride is hungry for attention, hungry for respect, hungry for worship in all its forms. This shows when we talk about ourselves a lot in conversation. If conversations always come to stories you're telling, that's probably an issue of pride. When we use lots of, fir- lots of first-person language, I, me, we, or me, rather, we is different, <laughs> This is a constant need for attention. Seven, the last one Jonathan Edwards wrote about neglecting others or prioritizing some over others. It honors different people that we deem worthy of honor, giving more weight to their words, their wants, their needs. And so we place some above others and we see the root of all kinds of sins come out of this. Partiality, racism, all kinds of of things that we do come out of neglecting others or prioritizing some over others. Next warning sign 
Pride often ignores or minimizes the contribution of others, lifting their own contributions up. It is hard for us to thank other people, be grateful for other people, to recognize how other people have contributed to something. Because somehow we think that might minimize that I get the glory. That might minimize the hard work I put into this that should be honored and respected. Guys, that's pride. It's pride. A controlling spirit. A controlling spirit often is an issue of pride. When I feel I need to control another person, that's an issue. Number 10, a warning sign of pride is when you feel like you're always right and others are always wrong. And they are. This one steps on my toes. <laughs> Every aspect of this one steps on my toes. <laughs> I'm reading through my subpoints. I'm like, ow, 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 again. So you trust your judgment and your decisions over anyone else's. Ow. You quickly disregard the advice of others. Feeling the need to constantly teach people things or weigh in on a subject. Those are all evidences of areas of pride in our lives that God wants to strip away and make us like Him. Number 11, less ministry at church is often a a function of pride. I'm too busy to prioritize that. That's helping other people. That's going outside of my interests. 12, assuming you already know something when someone is teaching. So those of you that checked out 20 minutes ago because you already knew what I was going to be teaching. No, sorry. Um, (laughs) I've done this at conferences. Well, I already know what they're teaching. I don't need to listen to that. It's a function of pride. Seeing yourself as too good to perform certain tasks. Number 13 there. 14, being too proud to ask for help. Ouch again. Maybe that doesn't apply to directions. (laughs) Okay, maybe it does. (laughs) Being too proud to ask for help. Fifteen, unwilling to submit to authority or constantly complaining when you do. And and I I added that part in because sometimes I see us and, and, and even my own tendency, okay, I'll submit. It's the kid that says, okay, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Oh, goodness, that's still pride. <laughs> Maybe that's more pride because <laughs> now we have the external facade of looking like we're obeying. But inside, no. 16, very difficult to admit mistakes and apologize. Very difficult to admit mistakes and apologize. I, I, I've got to tell you, that's 16, and I narrowed it down from the things that I read. And there was like 30 signs of pride. And Jonathan Edwards only had seven. This is why I started with him. Alan Parr, a bunch of these came from. I mean, we could go on and on and on because that's how insidious pride is. It, it creeps into every part of our lives. And I hope this gives us a starting point this week to say, God, humble me. God, deal with the pride in my life because it is sin and I know you hate it. I hope the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, we haven't finished the story yet, but up till now, this is the point where Daniel says, please change. Please see the warning signs. Please don't go down the road of what's going to happen next. C.S. Lewis wrote, the only solution to pride is humility. If pride is an exalted sense of who we are in relationship to God and others, humility is having a realistic sense of, of who we are before God and others. Spurgeon wrote, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. And so we have to start seeing, yes, we are image bearers of God and we have value because of that, but that's derived value from who God is, not who I am and how great I am. So this week, take, take a read through that list of 16 again. I would encourage you to pray through that list. And to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there be any wicked way in me. And let God start to do surgery in your lives. Now, if we're not sure that's important or applies to us, we should read the rest of the story. 
And this is where the story moves just real quickly from here. Like I said, we're two-thirds of the way through the chapter. Point number two, God humbles those that persist in pride. God humbles those that persist in pride. And now we get to the story of Nebuchadnezzar ignoring the warning, ignoring the, the, the red flags of pride, saying, I'm fine. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. That's an ominous start to this section. All this came upon him. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Did you catch that? Do you see God's grace? Do you see his mercy? At the end of 12 months, a year, he gave him a year to continue working on this. But instead, pride grew and festered. And we're going to see here. At the end of 12 months, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Those also are a warning sign for pride. (laughs) Aren't I great? Isn't this amazing what I've done? This This is powerful. And what he's saying. Now, now keep in mind, Babylon was amazing. Let me just read some descriptions of Babylon. And, and actually, I think I have a picture of a, a recreation of ju- this is just a gate. This is just a gate entrance. They colored it. They had all these reliefs. Babylon was amazing. One author wrote this. Babylon was a rectangularly shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat and then by an intricate system of double walls. By the way, their double walls, the exterior, were big enough that chariots could pass each other. And it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world that he's looking at from his rooftop. The first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick and reinforced with defensive towers at 60-foot intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another defensive double wall system, an outer wall 25 feet thick and an inner wall 23 feet thick, east of the Euphrates that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. The height of the walls is not known, but the Ishtar Gate was 40 feet high. And the walls would have approximated this size. A 40-foot wall would have been a formidable barrier for enemy soldiers. You think? Eight gates provided access to the city, the most celebrated of which was the Ishtar Gate on the north side. This was a massive double tower rising to the height of 40 feet, decorated with dragons of Marduk and and bulls of Hadad. According to Whitcomb, there were 557 of these animals in bright colors against a glazed blue background. This is a majestic city. One of the other things in the city was the hanging gardens of Babylon at one of his palaces a second ancient wonder of the seven wonders of the world. He's looking from his palace top at two of the ancient wonders of the world that he created. Most of the bricks taken out of Babylon in the archaeological excavations bear the name and inscription of Nebuchadnezzar stamped thereon. (laughs) I'm even going to put my name on the bricks. One of the records of Nebuchadnezzar sounds almost like a boast, which Daniel recorded. It reads, the fortifications of Escalia and Babylon, I strengthened and established the name of my reign forever. Look what I've done. And that's what we see in verse 30 there. He's pride. He's taking glory for himself. Keep in mind, there was a lot to take glory in. But even this man, the ruler of the known world, should have been giving deference to God. We can think, well, that would never happen today. Senior corporate executives today, with a net worth of one million or more, not including their residents, credit their financial status to various factors. Here's the percentage in a survey, recent survey of, of executives that are rich. It's not wrong to be rich. It's wrong to ascribe it to other people or to, to, to the wrong sources. 99% says they were there because of hard work. 97% said they were there because of their intelligence and good sense. said they were there because they had a higher than average IQ. 62% said they're there because they were the best in every situation. 
as the top four answers. We still do this today. We give credit to self. We give credit to our efforts. And we don't give credit to God. So let's see how this worked out for King Neb. 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, probably an audible voice. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. And again, underline this, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This is a basic principle. Get it. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heavens till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like the bird's claws. The greatest man on earth now is in the field acting like a cow. That's being humbled. That's to the extreme being humbled. It happened. God will not tolerate pride. Pride will be humbled. Whether in this life or the next, it will be humbled. And it happened to him. Now, interestingly enough, this is a real condition that we've observed since then. God is using a real mental condition. This, you can impress your friends with, oh no, that would be pride. Um, this is called boanthropy. Boanthropy and, and bow from bovine and anthropy. So a man cow or something like that. It's a rare mental in, in, illness where people believe they're actually cattle. Um, there was a, a, a modern case in the last century in um, a British uh, mental institution. And sure enough, the person grew long fingernails and had matted hair and ate grass. You know, if we were still outside, probably right now as an illustration, they have it all grab some grass and taste it. And <laughs> Okay, maybe not. <laughs> and, and so much so that at this place, they had to put like um, trays of water out for them to drink from because they kept drinking from the mud puddles like a cow. I mean, so... God used a real situation. That reminds us the Bible is true. Third century historians even notice a time where King Nebuchadnezzar, they call it, was possessed by a god or that there was mental illness. This man who thought he was God had to become a beast to learn that he was only human. Sinclair Ferguson says, Superman became subman. What an apt description of it. It's a reminder to us, God can humble any human accomplishments. He can reverse any human accomplishments. In a moment, you can have a loss of limb and your abilities go away. Your health can go away. Your money can go away. Your job can go away. A natural disaster can happen. 2020 can happen. Whatever it is, we can be humbled like that. And so the message is don't hold tightly to what you think you have. Don't hold tightly to what you think you've accomplished. It's not you. It is all a gift of God, and we use it all for the glory of God. And when we start to realize that, when things get taken away, we can say, well, that that skill was given by God anyway. He must have something else in mind because He is sovereign. He is over the nations. And we can trust that. If we hold on to pride, He will humble us. But he is sovereign. And then point number three, the last point, God honors those that humble themselves and recognize God's power and glory. God honors those that humble themselves and recognize God's power and glory. Verse 34. At the end of the days, this is the end of seven years, and we don't know what all transpired there. Some think that he was in the gardens of the palace, hidden from the people. The wording here makes it sound like he was out away from the city. Um, maybe his son ruled a little bit, maybe Daniel stepped in and ruled a little bit. We don't know because the point is about the pride. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And now we get the wording from the start of the chapter and now we see what happened And we see the change. 
that this man was humbled, but then turned back to God and God honored that. He lifted his eyes. Even in boanthropy, you still have a little bit of your cognitive state. And so he was able, that, that represents him looking to God finally in submission, responding to the God who was still there. And just quickly, you read through this and we see a number of things. 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And in in those two verses already, we see him confessing the sovereignty of God, his kingdom and dominion over all, that no one can ask him what he's done. No one is above God. He is sovereign above all. His way will happen. Now, now, just, just in way of real practical application, that means that politics is in his hand. And that means that our fear and our angst about what is happening or what we think will happen, we can give to God because it all is in his hand. Do, do you read what he said? We can learn from King Nebuchadnezzar. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? All kings, all dominions fall under the sovereignty of God, all presidents, all Supreme Court justices. Now we should participate in the process. You've heard me say that. And and write letters and seek justice and seek God's will. But don't worry about it. Sleep well at night. Because God is still on the throne. That hasn't changed. Whether or not we, we are able to... I, I, I'm nervous more about what's going to happen in the next two months from the standpoint of how our nation's going to react to each other. And I shouldn't be nervous about that either because God is sovereign over that. But we can, we can be lights in this world of how we treat others, how we treat differing opinions, whether or not we worry. Nothing has changed the fact that God is on the throne. And King Nebuchadnezzar praises his sovereignty. Catch something else in verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. I'm going to quote Sinclair Ferguson here. He confesses the creatureliness of of humankind. I love that. He confesses the creatureliness of humankind. That's humility. That's saying we're just creatures under a sovereign God. Now we're made in the image of God. He's not discounting that. But what a wonderful proclamation of humility. Verse 37, 36 and 37, we see more. But 36 says, At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Even that wording is so significant. Instead of, I I achieved more greatness, he now is wording it in, in... in a way that says someone else is adding that to me. In verse 37, though, we see the next thing he does is praise God and lift him up. And this is part of humility. Praising and being grateful to God, being thankful to God. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. This is huge. This is a complete radical change in this man. He praises and extols and honors the King of Heaven. He gives Him glory. He gives Him credit. He thanks Him for everything that's been given. And we're going to do that in a moment. That's how we're going to end our service, is doing what Nebuchadnezzar just said. Then he goes on and confesses the rightness and justice of God's ways, right? For all His works are right and His ways are just. Something a proud person struggles to do. I can't admit someone else is right and just when they disagree with me. I'm always right. And, and we see just a radical change in his heart. This is a description of humility, village. What we see in him. And then he recognizes God is able to humble the proud. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a powerful, powerful ending to this story. I want to end as worship team comes up with a quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. 
Lewis had a lot to say about pride and humility as well. He says this, and I think we have this on the screen because it's a little longer quote. I think it's in your notes too. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Isn't that good? Let me repeat that last phrase. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So what I'd like to do now as we end our service is to look up instead of down. To look up and praise our Lord, to praise His name, to give Him glory, to thank Him for all that He has done for us. Because as such, we are combating pride and we are humbling ourselves before a sovereign God. Let's stand and worship Him. And so to Your name we do give all the glory for everything that that you have blessed us with in life, for jobs, for family, for provision, Lord. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. We acknowledge that you are sovereign and all comes from you. Lord, I pray for us as a congregation. And Lord, I pray that you would expose pride in our lives this week as hard as it is. So in some ways, I pray that this is a hard week for us. But Lord, that it's a precious week for us as we humble ourselves before you. As we strip away different strongholds of pride that maybe we weren't aware of because then we draw closer to you and we experience a more intimate relationship with you and we see your work clearly. Lord, make us be a congregation that loves you and gives you glory and humbles ourselves before you. Thank you for your word, God. In your precious name.